gather round, fam. This is season two of the ND Fem podcast, and I am Dr. Kristen Scatliff. This is not scripted or rehearsed. We are transparent, honest, and vulnerable. We listen, we care. We are MD Fem. Okay, we're on with MD Fem. I am talking to Dr. Emily Shea, who's part of MD Fem Squad, and Dr. Mm-hmm. Dustin Swanino, who is one of our journey palliative care experts and one of our closest friends. How's everybody doing? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're having a conversation about end of life issues. It is a conversation that we all have to have as physicians with our patients and their loved ones. And especially in the setting of COVID, we've had this conversation a lot, okay? Too many so, times. Too, too many, many times. times. So as a, as a intensivist, um, I've had this conversation, I think, more than the regular, you know, everyday doc. And the problem is that we tend to see the, the areas, the holes where things are missed. So thought this was a very necessary conversation. It's a great um, podcast for both family members and patients with, um, you know, disease or diagnosis that they know are going to be terminal. It's also a great podcast for providers. So, so we're going to have um, a conversation about how to approach this, how, how to approach this issue and all the things that we think can be done better and things that are done well. So let's get started. Dustin, do you want to tell the people a little bit about who you are and what you do? The magic yeah, definitely. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, this is going to be my first podcast. Uh, is, yeah. No, this is going to be, it's, it's, I think this is really important. So, so basically, yeah, so I'm Dustin Swanino. Um, I actually work with, with Kristen. Um, she was my senior in residency, internal medicine. So, yeah, so I, I'm a, a geriatrician and a palliative palliatrician is what my, one of my attendings would call us, uh, but mostly <laughs> focusing on palliative care. Um, I'm a, assistant professor at one of the NYU sites, the one of the new newly uh, taken uh, NYU sites. Nice. Okay. So, so Emily, what, why don't you give them a little bit of background on why you're on this call also? We, we, we have you all the time, but just tell people who you are <laughs> and what you're doing. So, obviously, Emily Shea, intensivist and infectious disease physician. So, I also work in the ICU with critically ill patients, many of them, as Kristen said, often we find them at the, or we meet these people at the end of their life, the end stages of their life. And so um, more familiar with these end of life conversations than we probably like to be, but unfortunately it's part of the job. It's just, mm-hmm. it is what it is. Um, right. And as you said, Kristen, it's, I guess, heightened even more. We're having more of those conversations now, especially in COVID, but um, it's something that's important uh, just in everyday critical care stuff because right. that's just the nature of the ICU. And then my ID, I mean, it's infectious disease. 
I love it. I love it. I love it. It's infectious disease. <laughs> <laughs> Especially nowadays. Especially nowadays. I know, I know. The enthusiasm Listen, is, is on level a twenty-five. Conversation for another a whole time podcast. A whole podcast. Because I fully believe that infectious disease physicians are under undervalued, even during this time. Every mm-hmm. time something comes around, some infectious disease comes around, everyone is looking at us, but y'all don't want to pay us what. We're worth. That's I a mean, whole other podcast. True. We're going to segue back to the topic. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but, but that's a whole. That's um. a whole other. That's a whole other podcast. Um, I, as you know, am Dr. Kristen Scatler, founder of MD Fem, one of the squad. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician. Um, as Emily has said, we have these conversations all the time in the ICU, but also as a pulmonologist with lung cancer and certain diseases like COPD, we have to have pulmonary fibrosis, you know, p- patients who have um, conditions that will lead to transplant and so forth. We have to have these conversations all the time. And so let's start out with some definitions because I feel like part of the problem a part of the major issue with these conversations is that mm-hmm. we do the doctor talk, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of physicians go to families and start speaking our language, which is not common language, okay? And so we need to clarify definitions and make things real plain in regular English so that everybody's at the same level in the conversation. So what is a goals of care conversation. What is the whole point of having this conversation? Who wants to take that 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 question? I'll let so, Dustin take it. I was, yeah, I was just gonna say so. I mean, the most common consult that we have, <laughs> you know, is is we need goals of care. And you know, that's that's wonderful. And you know, what what our skill sets is and, and maybe maybe just taking a step back. Um, just to explain more what palliative medicine is, because sometimes okay. people, they get that stigma too, that they think it's, oh, it's just end of life care, oh, it's just hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's really totally different. I mean, what we focus on is being able to take care of people with serious illnesses, regardless of whatever their, you know, uh, at whatever their uh, stage of disease process, whether they're just initially diagnosed to, yes, end of life care. Um, but it's a huge spectrum where we utilize a whole interdisciplinary team, social worker, pharmacy, physical therapy, you know, a whole onslaught of people to be able to kind of gauge uh, and to really take care of the person as a whole, right? And in order for us to do that, we do three main things. Um, so one we talk about is symptomatic management. So that way we can get them through treatment, through their hospitalization, you know, because, you know, suffering while you're getting treatment is is, is not a good quality of life. I mean, for me, you know, it's, it's defined as whatever the person feels is quality of life. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the other two things, um, is basically communication advocacy. Sometimes we see things where we, we try to see, we, we see things where it's not being done appropriately, or there's no equity in the care that you see in, in certain patients. And so we're the voices there sometimes. Um, and lastly, which goes to the goals of care as we segue to it, is just being able to, you know, help navigate, you know, the hospital systems for these people who have serious illnesses and how complicated their care is, right? Mm-hmm. And, and who is there for them? Sometimes they feel like they're just on their own, listening to all this jargon as we were talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like people don't 
people don't get to to really voice what they want to say and and it's scary right it's their lives mm -hmm. so what we also try to do lastly is to be able to to hear them as a person what they want their goals and their wishes and does that truly align with our you know our assessment and our plan in our medical assessment and plan right we should be able to provide that expectation you know what is it that we are going to expect from the treatments you know the risks the benefits the you know let's just say it's even just like the um the best case worst case and the most likely case scenario mm -hmm. so so a lot of that you know is is good care and that's really um really a main main aspect of our of our team is to be able to have that i mean it's it's what goals of care is is is, is just that um okay. is to align with the person's wishes as wishes and values uh along with the medical pieces and helping navigate through that right so to, to try to jump off of the springboard that you've laid down there um one of the things i want to really stress is that every physician should be able to have this conversation exactly you should not have to consult people to have a, this conversation. This is your patient, okay? Let's that I've been consulted by ED and different docs just to come and have a goals of care conversation as an intensivist, okay? Mm -hmm. And I find that to be a little bit disheartening and it means that our, our fellow providers are not comfortable having this conversation. And one of the reasons they're not comfortable having the conversation is first of all, basically, you know, people being litigious, being in fear of being sued for some reason, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's get that out of the window. The reason people sue is not because of their diagnosis. It's sometimes not even because of the care. It's because of the interpersonal relationship they have with the medical team that was taking care of them and the fact that they didn't feel like they were understood or heard. That's exactly. why they sue. Exactly. Let's be honest okay so one of the first things i want you to take away from this podcast is that everybody can have this conversation everybody should feel comfortable having this conversation and every provider should know how to have this conversation with their patient okay that's the first thing the second, I, I know <laughs> hallelujah amen amen i'm sure emily <laughs> the same way if I, if I can add, and maybe, yes. Kristen, I may be about to steal your thunder, not sure if this is what you're okay. about to say go next, ahead. Go ahead. but um, I think the other reason probably a lot of physicians who are outside of the palliative care or intensivist role don't have these conversations, maybe they're just not comfortable mm -hmm. with having them, and I can say that that was me at one point during my training. Like I didn't feel totally comfortable, but the thing is to feel comfortable, you have to start having the conversation. So sure, your initial conversations are going to be trash. They're going to be horrible. You're not going to know what to say, but you know what? Each one that you do, we get better at it. And that's the only way to start to, you know, start feeling more comfortable. And each of them is not going to be, they're not going to be easy. They're not going to be easy at all, but they're necessary. And so to the fear of, you know, I'm not comfortable doing it, let someone else do it. It's not really like, I get it, but no, like you're going to have to just jump in. You have to do it at some point. That's what I had to do during training. That's what we all have to do during training. And I think that that may be another reason why people don't do it as much, but it's not a good excuse. 
Okay, so let me say this. For what we're going to do is we're going to lay down a platform. We're going to keep reiterating this platform so that when you listen to this podcast, you walk away feeling like Superman for these conversations. That's what I want you to feel like. I want you to be able to go into any room and have this conversation because you know as a provider, when you see a patient's chart, who's going to need these conversations? Yes or no? We know. Exactly. You know. Exactly. You see somebody with a metastatic pleural effusion, the conversation, okay? You see mm-hmm. somebody with, you know, you see somebody who's cachectic, temporal wasting, bed sores, let's have the conversation. You know, see what I'm saying? These are the things that we have to talk about. And we have to be able to feel comfortable about it. So as, as Emily said, we have to practice, but I want you to be able to have a template so that you feel more confident going into these conversations. So the first thing I want you to do is before you go to talk to anybody, go step away by yourself and start to put yourself in their place. This is how I approach it. Okay. If I was this patient, if I was this patient's loved ones or family members, what am I thinking right now? Okay. Mm -hmm. And the first question you always ask in these conversations is what do you understand up until this point about what's going on with you? What that does is it levels the playing field and it helps everybody to be on the same page because you will be shocked. You walk into a room and you think people have an understanding of what's going on and they Mm -hmm. have no clue clue. because people have been talking to them in medical jargon and talking around them also and never talking with them. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So so that's, this is the, this is the first level. We've got to get everybody on the same page. Another, another practitioner who always has this conversation is oncology. I wish we had an oncologist on this conversation. I tried. It was a little difficult to get someone scheduled. It's okay. I can, okay. I can speak to them. We can have, <laughs> we can have a biased. part. No problem. We can have a part two. But they, they, they have this conversation a whole lot more than we do. Um, and I would love to, you know, if, if we can have a part two, any oncologist listening to the podcast, call me. Email. Okay. <laughs> we can have a part two. But one thing I want, I want to make clear is that expectations are another thing that we have to set up. We need to set up realistic expectations also in these yeah. conversations. Yeah. We, are, we are not, you know, medicine has been able to take us to a very far place from where we came. Okay. However, mm-hmm. <clears throat> we're still not able to do everything. And so we need to get away from this phrase. This is number two for this podcast. Number two hot point. What does everything mean? When you as an ER provider (laughs) say to the patient, do you want everything? Do they know what everything means? Do you and not even ER. We're not we're not picking on ER because I'm gonna start with them. They're the first ones to see these patients. No, 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 no. I love my ED providers, don't get me wrong, but they're the first ones to see these patients. We're not the first ones to encounter patients who have been through a code or a disruptive event, and they're sometimes the first people to have these conversations. And what happens in that platform can dictate Mm -hmm. what happens in future settings. So let's mm-hmm. start there, okay? So, so do you want everything done? Of course, the patient's going to say, right? Of course, they're going to say, I want everything. What does that mean, though? So, so exactly. guys, so guys, let's, let's take that moment. Okay. Ask, <laughs> you know? So let's 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 say, what should they say instead? That's the, that's the lesson we want to we want to put out there. What do you think that they should say instead of do everything? 
Exactly. And, and, you know, it has to have context, right? It needs to have context. And so exactly. if you, if you at least get the, the main diagnosis of what's going on with this person, or you're just, you know, having these differentials, right. Uh, in your mind, you know, uh, maybe this person has a pneumothorax or a P or, or, uh, or blood clot in their lungs or their aorta is dissecting. Right. Mm-hmm. You, and you, and you just, you need to do this really quickly to figure out what would they want. And, and you're saying to them in very plain language, right? That's the thing that we always stress in palliative care is to be able to, to use this plain language and say, given the fact that I'm really concerned, I'm worried that if this X, Y, and Z diagnosis is what you have, we need to know what is most important to you. When it comes to your heart and your lungs stopping, what would you want the, the clinicians to do? Would you want them to have CPR and a breathing tube? And you have to have them at the same time. You, it's not a la carte, right? Um, that's sorry. That's like a side note. But, but you know, <laughs> like that. Be yes. Specific, right? yes, yes, yes. I love, I love the points. So It's an spe- important side note. It's you a can't very have important. one without the other. Sorry, sorry. Exactly. No, no, true, true. So let's let's talk about this because okay. So the first thing we're gonna talk let's let's put the let's put the side note to the side for one second. Let's talk about this. So the, we're we're trying to we're trying to make this a nice little bullet point for everybody. So the first yeah. thing we said was level the playing field, make sure everybody understands what's going on in the room. We're speaking in plain English, okay. Number two, specifics, specifics, specifics. Thank you, Dustin, for bringing that up. Be specific with what we are saying okay what what does this diagnosis mean for this patient Mm -hmm. and what can Mm -hmm. we do and what should you know be specific okay everything is not a question okay breathing tube chest compressions those are the things you say okay like so be very clear okay so let's talk about the side note now a lot of, of hospitals are doing this we have what we call a full dnr and we have what we call limited DNR. So we're going to get into lingo. What does DNR mean for the everyday, run-of-a-mill, ordinary person? What does DNR mean? So, so let me let me even step step back a little bit because now people okay. are trying to change the name of DNR and DNI. They want to do it now DNAR, right? Because so that way you don't have that a la carte kind of option. Right. It's do not attempt to resuscitate instead of do not resuscitate and do not intubate. You know, and so. So I think we need to, you know, as as a society in our medical society, you know, in America, I think we need to start pushing for that because they do that. I think in in New Zealand and in Australia, and it really helps them a lot. It okay, really okay, that's a great point. D N A R. Do not attempt to resuscitate. I like I like that actually. That's going to get yeah. put in the pocket. I saw, that's so, later. I saw that documented somewhere. Was it on a TV show? I can't remember. And I was like, you know what? That's actually that's actually better than the D N A R. It like is. DNR slash DNI. It's yeah. I I didn't realize that other countries were using that. Or was it? No, it might have been a paper I read from Canada. Anyways, I saw it and I was like, "This is great." <laughs> so, but I guess so for because we were trying to basically establish what a DNR is, right? Do not right. resuscitate. Do not so resuscitate. resuscitation efforts. So CPR chest compressions. That means if your heart stops, we, the medical team, our, our first instinct 
is we should be on the chest doing chest compressions. We're going to inject you with all kinds of medications to try and restart your heart. And there is a chance that it may not be successful. There is also a chance that if it is successful, we don't know what kind of damage, short-term or long-term damage could exist. So Mm -hmm. the do not resuscitate or do resuscitate comes with, you know, long-term and potentially short-term. It's not something to necessarily be taken lightly. So I know for myself, when I talk to patients, I always say, you know, chest compressions, it's a traumatic thing. It could potentially be life-saving, but it does have side effects. And there is no guarantee that I will be able to resuscitate you and bring you back. So let's, let's even stop there. Okay. So I, I want to stress this for my lay person that's listening. Do not resuscitate does not mean do not treat. Want right. to make yeah. that clear. Yeah. Yeah. Do not yeah. resuscitate does not mean do not treat. And for my healthcare workers, when you see DNR on the chart, it does not mean that we have stopped taking care of that patient. It does not mean that we have stopped doing interventions. It means we are not doing CPR. <laughs> we are not doing the heroic get that heart back. Okay. Right. Let's make that very, very clear. Okay. Exactly. Now, what, when we, as, as, as Dr. Shea made so very clear point, what DNR encompasses for the regular person, I want to make this clear to you because some people try to separate out compressions from shocks, from medication. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. With all the data that's been out there, the stuff that really increases survival is the compressions. Compressions are simulating the squeeze of your heart. They're creating perfusion while your heart doesn't beat. So if you give medications and you shock a patient, but you're not doing compressions, you're not doing full resuscitation. Just want to make that clear. Okay. So we don't, when I talk about it with patients, I don't break it into pieces. Either we're going to go the full Monty or we're not going at all. Okay. That's, that's, I want to make that very clear because there's no benefit to pushing medications if I don't have any perfusion. Okay. Right. Let's just make that very clear. Okay. The next thing all is, my clinicians, right? <laughs> all my clinicians. And the next thing is compressions are traumatic. You can't yeah, say right. that. Some people get taken aback when we say it. It is. If you're mm-hmm. doing effective compressions, you can break ribs. You can cause trauma. People can not can you will cardio. break ribs. You exactly. You ribs exactly. You haven't done it right. Doing them correctly. Right. Right. <laughs> if you haven't heard that that they're right there. That's it. That's the money shot right there. You want that. You want that. You need to be able to compress. Okay. So, and you want recoil. And the fact that they even tell you you want recoil means that they know that you press down to bounce back. What does Mm. that mean? That this, this angle here has already been taken in. Okay. So let's just make that clear. It is a traumatic experience, but it is a heroic effort to try to get a patient back as Dr. Shea also said, we don't know the quality of life you're going to have once we do this. Okay? So I'm so glad that you pointed those out, Kristen and, and Emily too. I mean, I mean, like, where do I, so, so there was a study that had shown, right. That people, lay people thought because of TV and media, right. Mm-hmm. That 80, 60 to 80% of the time people survive cardiac arrest on the shows, on the movies. And so there's a real unrealistic expectation when people come and say, yeah, we want, we want everything done. We want, right. We are and, and intubation. And yet, and yet the study that, 
that, well, at least for the updated circulation on the American Heart Association. So just recently when they, well, they were able to look at like 2007, I think that's 17, so 2017, which is the most latest. They say that out of hospital cardiac arrest, right? The survival just to get to the hospital is 28%, 28%. And even then, even then the survival to hospital discharge is only 10% and it's been stable like this for so many years. So, so you know why that is? It's because of bystander CPR. Let's talk about that. So when somebody codes or their heart stops and they're out in the supermarket or their home or whatever, it, most families and and, and and I mean, I don't expect you guys to know this, but most families don't know how to do CPR properly. They don't properly, even know, right. they don't mm-hmm. even know how to get the patient into a position where they're less compromised. Sometimes mm-hmm. they leave them in the bed, you know, this is, the, this is the stuff. And they try to do compressions there. You don't have a hard board underneath. This is, the, these are the problems. And so bystander CPR is always going to be the problem. And then the EMS is going to take at least five to seven minutes to get to that spot. And so you have five to seven minutes of no real perfusion, okay? This is the problem, and that's why those statistics are not going to change, okay? Because we have to have those, that's a confounding variable. We have to make sure that that's understood to patients. So if you tell me Papa has not been responsive since 10 a.m., and we're here now 2 p.m., and and we're just wheeling into the, the hospital and so forth, survival has gone down dramatically, mm-hmm. dramatically, not to mention his comorbidities, we're not talking about the fact that Papa chewed tobacco for 35 years. We haven't even touched that. Okay. We haven't even touched that. that. We haven't even touched that. Okay. My so goodness. let's be realistic. This is not ER. And some of these medical shows, I really wish, you know, myself, Dr. Shea, and Dr. Swanino are available for you to hire for medical consultancy. <laughs> we are, you know, we're listen, here. listen, we're totally. here. We're here. We're here. Okay. Because some of these medical shows, they're resuscitating people. I don't see an ET tube or the ET tube is not (laughs) in. It is all the way out. Okay. I've never seen anything like that. Okay. If you're going to do it, let's do it right. At least cut the tube so that it looks like it's properly in. Okay. There's no security for the ET tube. They're they're bringing out old paddles. What have you used a paddle? When have you used the paddle? Are we in 1985? I see this. Shocking. Are you serious? Come on. Come on. We are available for medical consultancy if you work available. So so shout out to my favorite directors and and producers out there, Tyler Perry, Ava DuVernay. Anybody, you want to hire us? We're here. Thank you. We out here. We out here. Okay. (laughs) Be it like it's not realistic. People watch these TVs and movies, just like you said, Dustin, and they Mm -hmm. get these expectations. Mm -hmm. And then they, when we come to them and say your loved one hasn't survived or XYZ has happened, they're all shocked. So let's change. Yes, let's change the expectation. Let's change the expectation. Let's lay that foundation here. Okay, that is not yeah. what really happens, unfortunately. Okay. And to reiterate, do when we say quote doing everything, it's not the same as CPR. So I think a lot of physicians, you know, when we talk to the patients when they're in extremis or you know. Even before that, we say, do you want us to do everything? The answer is yes, because in the patient's mind, they're thinking, treat me like you're going to treat me. And, you know, they're probably maybe they're not even thinking about CPR. So we have to be specific. And when we are having the 
do not attempt to resuscitate conversation. I think it's important to stress that we're still going to do everything we can medically for you. But if it comes to a point where your heart stops or if it comes to a point where, you know, a pre-established point where you say, this is a point where I wouldn't want to go any further, then that will be our stopping point. So we still, as you said, Kristen, delivered therapy. We do everything we can. We go all out for you until you say, this is where you should stop. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Where's okay. the threshold? Where's exactly. that threshold? So let's mm-hmm. talk about, let's talk about some more lingo here because we've, we've, we've really, we've really stressed the DNR. Okay. And if people have do not resuscitate or a do not intubate on their chart, it's very important. You look for that paper that documentation, that 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 sign. A lot of people don't take the time to look mm-hmm. at the, the the code status. Please, before you start having any conversations with people, look to see what the history of this conversation has been. I, I get you know, especially people who have prolonged diagnosis. Someone has been here before you. Go and read. Go and read so that you have a better background going into that conversation. Okay, now. What about, what is an advanced directive? What is an advanced directive? We talk about all these things like advanced directives, living wills. What, what are these things? Dustin, this is your forte. Come on. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, an advanced directive, right? This is what is important. This is key to, to kind of get, to, to know at least what the person wants. These, these are, are the person's voice written down, their wishes, Right. And, you know, the conversation that they hopefully have had with their loved ones, those who they've chosen to, you know, uh, carry out their, their wishes when they're unable to speak for themselves. So when, you ha- when we talk about advanced directives, these should be started in, in the primary care setting. Yes. Primary care setting. And I need to stress that. It's, it's not about when the person has, you know, um, like a heart attack, you know, a heart attack or, or you know, diagnosed with a very, um, uh, you know, uh, an emergent, um, you know, cancer diagnosis that you have to treat immediately. Like where, why do we have to be, why do we have to like think so on the, on the spot when we could have mm-hmm. had time to really think about it? We're, we're, un- we're, we're uncomfortable, so, but it's let really me, Let me just, let me just sidestep into your conversation yeah. there. The yeah. problem is, and Please, America, I do love you. I am an American, okay? But I see that my Western folks here have a problem with death. We have a problem with talking about death, okay? We don't want to talk about me, my, and papa going. We don't even want to talk about us going, okay? If you're an adult, you need to have this conversation with the people that you love, okay? Because you never know what tomorrow holds. As an intensivist, I have seen very young people in their 20s, Okay, even younger than that, I've seen I've seen very old people who are in their 90s who have never had this conversation with the people they love. So their voice is not a part of the conversation when we have a situation like this. Okay, so don't be afraid to talk about it. You're not calling it into the room. Okay, just want to just want to make that clear. You're not calling it into the room, but it's necessary for you to have that conversation because your loved ones want to do what you want to be done. At the end of the day, people who really care and love for you are not going to just keep you alive if that's not what you wanted, okay? You didn't want to be sustained by machines. They're not going to do that, but they have to know that that's what you didn't want. All right. so you have to have that conversation, okay? So it's very important to have this conversation. So yes, primary care physicians, 
advanced directive. Let's start having this conversation with all of our patients and documenting. This is what, you know, take some time out of the, of the whole session and say, what is it that you want? What kind of quality of life do exactly. you want? Okay. That's how we approach that conversation. Okay. I love opening a chart and digging through like the media section or the photocopies and there's a yes. post form. Yes. I'm like, Listen, all my primary cares. Yes, all my primary cares that do pulse. I literally do like a Care Bear love sign for you. Yes. (laughs) Because somebody has like right in my mind, primary care, like you're there from essentially if you're family medicine, birth till death. If you're I am, then like 18 till death, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So you're carrying, you know, this patient through Mm -hmm. the ups and downs, the highs and lows, you have the opportunity to have this discussion. And so the fact that you had it and documented it for somebody like me, who's meeting the patient for the first time when they're an extremist, listen, that means I can say, I saw that you and Dr. Joe had this discussion about what you would want at this, you know, when you reach this point. And I think we've reached this point. There we go. Do you want to, you know, tell me how you want to go about this? Listen, listen, listen. Palliative care, end of life, goals of care conversations are a house and they need stable foundation. It starts with you, primary care. Yeah, it does. Thank you. Thank you. Lay that foundation. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Hallelujah. Preach for the preach. Preach. When I see a post, I. Listen, that is the right? best. That's the best right there. That's the best right there. Because now, it's not, it's not, it, to me, it's not any, I don't want to say fun, but it's not a good feeling to be the new person on the block and be like, I'm Dr. Shea and you're going to die. Like what? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, oh, how Adam, many times do we have to do that? How many times? It's like, you're meeting me, I, I always start, the, I always say this in my conversation, I'm so sorry that this is the first time that we have to have, mm-hmm. you right. know, this type of... You have to stress it, you have to stress it. I, I'm like, this is not the way I want to meet you, okay? But here we are, and so let's have this conversation. Um, so yes. what's, the, what's the big difference between an advanced directive and a living will? What's, what's, the, what's the big I difference mean, so- there? So, I mean, they're, they're actually, so, so the living will is a part of an advanced directive, except that living wills, depending on each state, whether they actually choose to, um, you know, to abide by it, uh, mm-hmm. like in the state of New York, for example, you have a living will, but you don't necessarily have to abide by it, but it okay. does help. Um, and I did that just uh, two days ago on Friday, where this this the son he's he was just very concrete about things, and he you know he said he like read the living will of his mom, and it said that you need to have two attendings to say that this person has a life limiting illness, and then we follow through with her wishes of no feeding tube because she has dementia, mm. right? And so, you know, and it was great because we were able to go through that living will, and he has that better understanding. So, and I I stressed it. I said you know, mom took away your bur- took away the burden on you. She said it right here. Her voice is in written language that this is what she wants. So you know what, just, just continue with what she wants, right? Let's, let's promise that, that, you know, and abide by her living well. Um, right. the, 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 the most form, um, which is, is there are physician orders. These are, these are clinician orders, right? That, are not allowed to be changed unless the person themselves has wanted has wanted it to change. So, 
how many times, and this is where our con like this is where I come in as a palliative care doctor because we appreciate when the primary primary team does their primary palliative skills. When things become challenging, then that's where we're at, right? They'll say that like let's say the you know dad had wanted DNI orders in place and the most was there, but the daughter was saying no, no, no. He you know I don't want that to happen. But you know unfortunately, dad had already made his wishes said. Right. And legally, they cannot change it. And that's something that we always have to be mindful of is also getting in, in risk involved and, and ethics, if that's the case. But, you know, in, in regards to my specialty, that's that's what we're going to help with um, is to kind of suss out why is it that there is a disconnect between loved ones and the and the, and, the, and a most form. Right. Or a pulse form um, to right. say it. You know, to tell the difference. Can you just like I, we're saying most and post and these are oh, yes. it's basically an acronym. So can you just explain like you know what it is or what the what the acronym stands for? So thank you. And so yeah, post and most are the same exact things, except that one is more. Um, it, it's it's more I guess politically correct. So most is the medical orders of life-sustaining treatment, while uh, pulse is practitioners' orders of life-sustaining tra treatment. So that way, it, it doesn't it, it allows for for social workers, for physician assistants, for nurse practitioners, um, uh, any other clinician uh, to be able to do this. Okay, great, great. Now let's let's talk about healthcare proxy. What is a healthcare proxy, and how is this different from a next of kin? How is this Ooh. different from a next of kin? Because this is something that we always encounter in oh, intensivist land. Okay, we're going to call it intensivist land. Um, but this is something we always get into, right? What's the difference between a healthcare proxy and a next of kin? Next of kin. So, you know, and that's a good question that to have because it's really important, um, especially when you find someone who just is admitted for altered mental status, right? They have no other information. No one came with them. Yeah. Who is the person that we should speak to? So, right. um, so, so in a state, in a state by state, it's it's different. So, for example, um, certain states like New York, we have what we call the Family Healthcare Decision Act of New York, which was established in order to us to determine the next of kin, the surrogacy, uh, following a um, structure. Um, you know, where, for example, it would be someone who ever has a healthcare proxy, then a guardianship, then it would be um, domestic partner or, or spouse, and then adult child, then the person's parents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Other states, unfortunately, don't don't go by by uh, by next of kin, which is unfortunate, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can actually just ask anybody, and you can just follow through with whomever you want. You know, it could be. You know the the crying you know family member who doesn't want the person to 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 you know to go when they know that you know there's limited there's limited time for that person. Right. So it's it's hard, and that's why it's important to have a healthcare proxy, right? It's a way for us to know who we should trust to make these decisions on our behalf after have spoken to them and after you have a, you know they have affirmed that they want to be your healthcare proxy. That's that's really important. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I want to stress this for for my lay people that are listening. No, we're having the hot points. It's a bullet point time. And I just want to say, right, when you're having this conversation about what I want done, end of life, or should I not be able to talk for myself, or I am in a big medical emergency, you need to know who you can trust to make decisions in line with your autonomy. That's a big word for us. Autonomy means your wishes. That's what you want. 
it's one of our number one principles that we follow. Okay. Mm -hmm. We follow autonomy, what the patient wants, what's good for the patient. Okay. Non-malfeasance. We're not hurting you. Okay. We're helping you. Beneficence is helping you. Okay. So these are big ethic words. Okay. Everybody thinks, oh, it's only for the exam. No, it's for life. Better learn them and know them and implement them in your, in your, in your whole um, conversation and make sure that patients understand that, okay, I know that, you know, sometimes I've had this conversation with my, my friends, some of your husbands or, or loved ones, they're not going to do what you want to be done. I've had this mm-hmm. conversation with, with mm-hmm. my significant other and he's made it clear, I'm not doing that. So I said, oh, you can't be my healthcare proxy. I know who I can go to. AKA Emily Shea, AKA Dustin Swan, you know, I'm just saying that's informing you right now that y'all are my peoples right here. I'm just saying, you know, I know. (laughs) I'm just saying that, you know, you know who you can trust to make these difficult decisions, especially as physicians. We, we know what happens in these scenarios. We Mm. don't want certain things. A lot of us don't want certain things and our families are not going to do that because you have to remember very close loved ones, they love you. And it's going to be very hard for them to separate and detach. Okay. It's a very emotional time. And so sometimes you're going to need someone who can remain objective throughout the emotions. And that's where a healthcare proxy comes in. Okay. You want what is best for you, even in the throes of the crying and the scre- the crying, screaming family member is not rational. I'm going to say it again for the cheap seats in the back. The <laughs> crying, screaming family member is not rational. If you had a doubt, I'm they're just letting you know they're, they're struggling, struggling and it's okay for them to struggle, but that's exactly. not the person you should lean on for the decision. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. want to say, okay, 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 let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's just bring it back, okay, because we need to stay on time. I want to ask you guys a question. So now what is the difference? okay, between palliative care and hospice. Mm, These yeah. are things that are used synonymously, but they are not synonymous. Yeah, this, is, a, I, this is important. I want to hear your answer, Dustin, because... This is not synonymous. No, and, and um, thank you for, for bringing this up, you know, and I, and I want to stress, and I absolutely want to stress, because every time that I say, I say, oh, I'm from palliative care, <laughs> they immediately dart like giving me these 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 looks and i'm like and i i ha- and i'm professional about it you know and and i tell them um you know have you ever had experience with palliative care do you, can you tell me a little bit more of your experience and if they say you know if they do they'll tell me a story i'm like oh it sounds like more of a hospice situation and not more palliative care um and you know when they say no like i give like regardless i give them the spiel you know like like i was saying in the beginning you know with palliative medicine, we, you know, we are there for the seriously ill person, right? Regardless of whatever their situation is, any stage of their disease, from diagnosis to even death, and also to even those who are controlled of the disease or are cured of the disease, we're still there. Mm-hmm. We're still there. It's just that hospice is only a small portion of, of what palliative care can do as like, I guess, a you know, as, as a, we just bring over our specialty because what hospice is compared to palliative hospice is just a service. It's not a specialty. A hospice is, is a, is a, a philosophy is what we say. And it is a way for us to provide an additional layer of support. That's it. 
additional layer of support that when you know that when treatments have been foregoed or when treatments aren't working and it had failed the person, we need to shift our, our, our treatments, our shift our focus on treating comfort knowing that time is shorter. And, you know, that's why they have this arbitrary six months, which we have no idea where that came from. Yeah, where did that come from? That is that is problematic. Like, right. like, so we have a thing that's happening. I've had this happen a couple of times working in North Carolina. As everybody who listens to the podcast knows, I'm a locums. Um, and so in North Carolina, there are people who are in hospice that are not, so this is, this is really interesting. They're not DNR. Yep. Or yep. it's 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 really interesting, and I'm like, what? How yeah. did, I'm so confused. I'm so confused. <laughs> I've had I've had patients admitted to ICU from hospice, like full code, and I'm like, um, it's possible. Crickets chirping. Crickets chirping. I'm questioning what happened here because uh, I missed I missed that page. I went through the chart. <laughs> What happened? So yeah, Dustin, so in like that situation, <laughs> how, I guess, how does that even happen that someone would be on hospice, but there is no do not attempt resuscitation instructions? Basically, let me explain this part. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, so basically some, some, some people who just go with full resuscitation, right? They just know that, you know, they're going to die of their, um, their illness naturally. And those are just words, right, to just be placed. Um, most people, when they have hospice at home, um, they just know that they want to be, they, they want to die peacefully in their sleep. So base, so what they would do is just, you know, they won't have any CPR, you know, they just don't, some, sometimes people just don't want the phrase or don't want the word. Okay, I understand. That way. But at the end of the day, you know, they, you know, if that's what their wishes are, sometimes, actually, this is a good one, sometimes that people who want to still continue to have full code orders in place and they are going to kind of be stuck um, in the hospitalization, it's a way for people to, if they do get the, you know, um, the, the CPR and the trial of intubation, they want to have family members, loved ones who, ha- um, who are from other places, other states, to be able to come by and see them prior to their death, and then they can let them go. So that's another reason why some people will put in full code orders in place. Okay. okay. I never thought about that, actually. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I had that happen, I mean, 12 hours ago, asking me to, yeah. you know, can we just continue so that people can come and, you know, say, and I said, well, you know, in COVID times, we have limited visitation, so that's not going to work. Um, but let's see if we can come up with a plan together that will at least help the family that's here, you know, have their 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 ability to say goodbye. You know, um, what what's interesting for me though is that I feel like a lot of, and I'm going back to my oncologist, love you, but um, <laughs> I I've met a lot of patients from the oncology setting who have stage four. Or, or terminal cancers that are mm-hmm. receiving palliative treatment and they don't understand what palliative treatment means. They think that they're still being actively treated for curative reasons mm-hmm. and it's, it's not been clarified. And how do we get over this hurdle? How do we explain, make sure our patients understand what we're doing right now is just for symptom management and trying to make quality of life better mm-hmm. rather it's, than, it's, it's exactly, rather than it's trying to treat, treat the cancer, you know? Explain. 
You explain exactly. what it is. That's it. Plain exactly. and simple. You got to just be straight up and, and upfront with them, you know? Exactly. I think that they have, like, you know, I've heard some, some, some physicians say to me, well, you know, patients' outcomes change when you tell them they're going to, you know, they're, they're terminal or they have, you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, because the mind, mm-hmm. you know, and the depression and X, Y, Z. Is there yeah. any evidence to support this? Oh my goodness. There has been so many, there's so many. So, so, you know, I was looking, I was looking more into that as well too. So, so this is interesting. Um, basically a systematic review base. So what that is uh, for everyone is, is that um, it's just a, a, a review of all the research that they have talked about what patients have, have wanted from uh, about, you know, disclosing their prognosis or, uh, talking about the trajectory of care um, and knowing how much time that they have left and how the emotions and the quality of life is affected and how how clinicians themselves feel uncomfortable about it. So, you know, there's this one um, study that I was looking at. I mean, it's from 2000. Um, and it, it was really the, how, how, the, how, how patients really wanted to hear their, their prognosis. Nearly all patients had reported that they wanted to hear about their 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 prognosis their prognosis right they, they wanted and to be truthful and transparent exactly we, yeah. we they wanted the truthful and transparentness and when they weren't even offered it you know they were just like yeah i still want to know and even caregivers caregivers also wanted to know as well too you know, and that, and it was such like it's it's definitely over. It was over fifty percent uh, of people that have wanted to know. You know, what is my trajectory? Um, a lot of clinicians have felt like correct, like they're, they're going to be depressed. Their you know their prognosis is going to be shorter, um, or they just feel uncomfortable. But it's actually not true. It has been shown that there's no increase in depression or anxiety. It's actually more of a relief because a lot of these a lot of these people they're they're worried about one thing is the unexpected, the unknown, what is going to happen to me? And they just want guidance. That's all. Exactly. That That's so all. Re- that a really big thing that, you know, I, I want to say from my practice experience, just to, to kind of reinforce what um, Dustin just said was um, I've had some younger patients with breast cancer, unfortunately, and having metastatic breast cancer and having children and their major concern is making plans for the people that remain behind, okay? They want to be able to make plans, okay? They want to know this is the amount of time that I have or, you know, and I can't give you, so when people ask me how long do I have, I don't, I'm not God. I don't have the sand time timer in my hand. I am not going to tell you, oh, you have exactly this amount of months. No, okay? Because things can change, okay? Okay, so let's just, let's just put that out there. But I do want to say that, it's, it's very important for clear communication and for setting mm-hmm. up certain expectations. Like, you know, once you see a metastatic pleural effusion in these patients and you're having to put in a pleurex and their work of breathing is getting worse and their function is getting worse, we're coming towards a precipice, right? We're getting to that area. This is, you know, we have to set that up. For, we have to say, listen, we're here. We're at this point. Being transparent you know, it helps patients to prepare, okay? It helps them to set up their loved ones for this is what may happen, you know? And these are the contingency plans we have in place. And that actually removes anxiety. 
It removes anxiety and it makes things a little bit better for the people who remain behind because they don't feel like they've been uprooted or this has happened unexpectedly or there's out of the blue, out of the blue. That's the one they always say out of the blue. And for my people who have like, you know, COPD or, or so forth, you know, like it's very important for us to have conversations about intubation because a lot of people with, you know, lung disease, progressive lung disease, okay, if they're not candidates for transplant, okay, intubation is not the answer. I want to make sure people hear me all the way in the back of the stadium. Intubation does not treat, it is a temporizing measure. It buys us time. That is what it does, okay? Let's make it clear. And if you've been intubated for a long time, you're at risk for infections, you're at risk for vocal cord dysfunction, you're at risk for diaphragmatic problems. And I'm sorry, I'm speaking medical lingo, but it's basically muscle weakness. Okay. The longer that you're on the vent, the weaker you get. So let's make that very clear. Okay. So when I have that conversation with people, I'm going, listen, we go down this path. There's really not a turn back here. I'm like, did you see Susie on the tobacco commercial with the tray, that hole in her throat? That's where Mm. we're going. Okay, like you need to make it clear, you know, one of the things that people are always shocked that I say in these conversations is that, you know, when we intubate Mima or Papa, they won't be able to talk to you. What? Lay people don't understand. I'm going through your vocal cord. They're not going to be able to communicate. And if they're not doing well with the ventilator, they're going to be asleep for most of this because Mm -hmm. we're going to sedate them. These are things that we have to have as a part of the conversation, okay? We need to be very clear about what the expectation is from outpatient setting to inpatient setting to ICU, okay? Everybody needs to be very clear in communication. So this is, we're coming towards the end of the conversation. We're gonna make some hot points, bullet point time, okay? Number one, make time for this goal of care conversation. Every yep. physician, please, please, please. Number please. two, Ask permission to have the conversation. Sometimes people are not ready to talk to you. And if you go bull speed ahead in this, it's not going to end up really well. So let's start there. Just, just, you know, say, hey, you know, we're going to have, I want to have this conversation. Is this okay? Cultural differences too play into it. Okay. Very important. Let's make sure that we're, we're being culturally sensitive and competent. Sometimes people want their family members there. Sometimes they don't want their family members there. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes, exactly. Please, 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 please clarify this before you get yourself into the panic room is what I call it. The panic (laughs) room, okay? Number two, another, sorry, number three, actually, was my number three. Sit down. Do not stand up in a room of seated people and have this conversation. People don't understand the perception of you standing over people talking about death. It's not good, okay? <laughs> you might as well walk them, in right? with a sickle. Like, you might yeah, as well, you might as well walk just walk in with a sickle. Grim Reaper stuff. No, no, no. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> Sit at their level. At their level. Take exactly. the voice level down, you know. Now, offer, some, yeah, offer some water, some tissues, you know. Would you like a fruit plate? Some hospitals do that. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. Make the make the atmosphere nice and calm. You know, I always ask everybody to mute and silence their phones so that everybody's focused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
mm-hmm. everybody's phone, and then no one's recording me because that's a no-no. We don't record yeah. doctors during this conversation. It's I know that some people think that yeah. that's protecting themselves legally, but it's not helping the conversation. Okay, yeah. this is a this is a point. It's number four, but it's a point for the families. I know a lot of this is children, especially a lot of you think I'm advocating for mom, and so you get grounded down in your heels and belligerent and very very difficult to deal with the medical team, and you say. Big words, thinking that's going to intimidate them. You're only causing animosity between the people that are caring for your parent and your family, okay? It's not going to work. It doesn't make the situation better. You're not protecting them. That's not the approach. Let's stop right there, okay? If we feel angry or we feel like we don't understand or we feel like people are not listening, we take a step back. We calm down. And we explain clearly, I don't feel like you're hearing me, okay? If they're still not hearing you, escalate. Take it up. Take it up. But don't get angry. Exactly. Don't get angry. Shouting, curse words, threats. Absolutely not. Absolutely Absolutely not. not. The okay. Way. We don't need that. We don't need that. Right <laughs> we don't need that. We don't need that. We don't need that. The quickest way to break it, down communication. And it, and it happens a lot because people are frustrated. Okay. Yeah. But it breaks down communication. And if you want to do the best thing for your loved one, you have to keep the lines of communication open. Physicians, at the same time, with this point, I want to say, stay calm. People, this mm-hmm. is an emotional time for families. They're going to yeah. say wild stuff. Yeah. You just. Breathe in, breathe out. Woo-saw. Just get in that happy place. Get comfortable and then say, I hear what you're saying. I understand your frustration. Let's talk about it. Bring it down. Bring it back down. Don't (laughs) let it go up. Bring it back down. And if it's still heightened, you say, I'm going to step away at this time and allow you to gather yourselves. Yeah. Come back and continue this conversation. You can always come back. You can always come back. always fun to do. I, I love to say that to people. Yeah. It get, it's going to get heated. It's going to get uncomfortable. This is someone's loved one, okay? And they're exactly. trying to get control of the situation. And you're dealing with different personalities. And this is just the nature of things. So you want to maintain control. You want to keep the communication lines open. Stay calm. Back away. Come back, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I have a question for you guys. When do we get ethics involved? When do we get ethics involved in these situations? Oh, which situation? <laughs> that's the that's the ethical question. Which Good. situation? Good. So I see that's people. That's always a struggle for me. When to decide? Okay, yeah. ethics needs to be involved. Um, but I think if how do I put it? If my medical opinion and possibly you know, obviously we work in multiply this multiple multidisciplinary. Yeah, isn't that? Interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinary. There you go. There you go, Dustin. We work together. We work together, not separately. Right. So usually there are other physicians involved in the care of the (laughs) Right. Dry mouth right now. It's okay. It's okay. (laughs) So, you know, if if the if the consensus of the team is, you know, this patient is, let's say I'll use an example, patient in the ICU multi-organ failure, intubated, on dialysis, 70 plus years old, multiple comorbidities, 
you know, in the ICU for two, three weeks and not really turning the corner and showing that they're, you know, getting better. This is the patient where I'm like, okay, I don't think we're necessarily going to get, despite everything that I'm doing, this patient is not going to get up out of the bed and walk out of the hospital. Most likely, unfortunately, is, is a patient who's probably going to end up dying here in the ICU, right? So now I'm having this discussion with the family. And if they are continually saying, keep going, keep going, do, you know, continue the dialysis, you know, keep them on the, don't trach them, keep them on the, the breathing tube, like, you know, put the feeding tube in. And I'm saying, am I doing stuff too? this patient or am I going to actually be helping this patient? So this goes back to the whole principle of beneficence and malfeasance. Are we helping or are we harming? Right. So if I find myself in that situation where I'm saying, if I keep going, I'm actually going to be harming. I'm not, what I'm doing is not going to yield the benefit that it should be yielding. I'm not going to get this patient better. And I'm kind of at odds with what, the family or the person who's speaking on the patient's behalf and we're just not budging either of us is not budging to me that's kind of where I get the ethics people involved because I'm thinking I'm hurting this if I keep going I'm gonna be hurting I'm not treating this patient as I would my family member like I'm doing stuff to them that is not gonna help so the so the synopsis there is when your plan of care and the patient's family or patient's wishes are not lining up and we're possibly doing harm and not helping, it's time to involve ethics. Yeah, okay. that's when I get them involved. When we're pulling okay. in two separate directions and nobody's winning the tug of war, that's when I'm like, okay, I need somebody else so to take a bird's eye view of things. <laughs> So, so yeah, definitely. I mean, so my, my boss is the head of ethics at our, um, at our institution. So he always incorporates that within our, our, our care too. Um, so, so, so yes, that would be definitely a good one. The thing is that we'd always have to have to make sure that we have that family meeting to mm-hmm. have all the supports that are needed, social work, chaplaincy, whoever needs to, to kind of weigh in and just kind of understand where, why there's this discrepancy between our medical knowledge that we've provided to them and our, you know, what we know as to opposed to what they, what they're feeling. And if they're constantly, for example, like you're saying, if they're constantly going against what you're doing, uh, what you're saying and it's hurt and we feel that it's hurting the person. Uh, yeah. Then, then yes, ethics needs to be involved even after having tried our best to have an understanding goals of care and having the right people to kind of, you know, maybe it's maybe more of a religious aspect and we need like chaplaincy and, you know, but yes, you know, that's when I would do it as well too. And also I want to bring up medical futility. It's something people run away from as providers. Okay. But there is such a thing as medical futility. There is such a thing. Now it's state to state. This varies upon where you practice. Okay. So always go look up the rules of where you practice. Okay. But you know, there is a point that when, if we offer these things, it's futile care. Okay. That normally requires multiple providers, the interdisciplinary team agreeing, this is not the path we can go down. We're not going to be helping this patient. Okay. And that's considered a futile care and that can be invoked by providers. Okay. That situation It takes the power out of the family's hands, unfortunately, because we know that we have a diagnosis that even if we do these things, we're not going to be 
reversing anything. We're not treating anything. We're not even buying any more time. All we're doing is causing further injury. That's when futility comes in also. So that's a whole nother topic in itself. Um, okay. So I want to think, uh-huh. sorry, do you think the, I guess for both of both of you, do you think he, some of the terms, like when we say futile, do we think that kind of triggers people a little it bit? It does. There Absolutely. Different terminology. You, listen, this is why we're having this conversation. When people hear the words palliative care, hospice, futility, you know, they go DNR, they, they, the wall goes up, right? Because they all have negative experiences prior to this with these terms. And that's why it's important for us to have conversation, okay, uh-huh. where we explain in plain English, mm-hmm. this is why we're talking about X, Y, Z, okay? Context and information is going to help understanding and broader picture. Remember that when people are in distress, they hyper-focus on one little point, okay? Mm-hmm. And we, our, our point, our, our, our whole point of having this conversation is to get them to see the broader picture. Stop focusing on the leaf and see the forest, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Yes, she's got an effusion, but she has metastatic cancer. Let's talk about that, okay? Okay? Let's talk about that. Let's bring it back to the big picture, Okay. And, you know, I, I, the other thing that I want to say, um, you know, just to kind of like, we're going to go into the wrap up right here is, um, basically when you're having this conversation, it's really important what person speech you use. Okay. First person versus third person, right? How, Mm -hmm. how are you referring to, you know, you you need to be very careful of how you talk about the patient in in relation to the family and in relation to providers and so forth. And you also want to make sure that the whole medical team understands the conversation that you had. Documentation Mm -hmm. is very important too. You need to document that conversation so that other providers know, oh, Dr. Scatliff has had this conversation with his family. This is what happened during this conversation, blah, 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 so that they're not starting at the same point that you did. Okay? So we we need to make sure that that's all all on, on point. You never want to go against another physician also. Let's just make this clear, okay? Don't start setting up teams. This is not chess, okay? We're not on opposite side of the boards, okay? So let's make sure. I was saying, but I see it all the time. And you want to make sure that we're all coming together on the same page, okay? We all have the same goal, okay? Because if people hear two, three different stories, that's when confusion starts and their artillery goes up and they back mm-hmm. up into the wall and they yeah. go, you yeah. are, you're lying to me. You're lying right. to me. That's what you hear. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Let's consistent get on the same page. Consistent messaging. Exactly. We should all be saying the same theme. And that's what happens when we work together and we communicate clearly, then we can communicate clearly to patients' families. Okay. So how has this conversation changed in COVID times? Dustin, you want to... Oh, so, you know, it's interesting because my colleague and I have been talking about it. She actually brought this up because it's different, right? We don't know a lot about this still, about this virus. And our goals of care conversations are so much more different because why? 
you know, initially in the beginning of, of, of the peak of the pandemic, mm-hmm. we were, we were like, oh, well, you know, they probably have like, you know, maybe days or weeks to, to, you know, for, for them to have to, to live. And we were talking about at that point, 80% of the time when at once you're intubated, you know, mortality is, 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 is at 80%. And now, now, since we have a little bit of a better hold on, on 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 treating these people where we have long haulers. I mean, my God, we had ECMO people for about two or three months. Yeah, people for so long, and you know, you're getting a resuscitation status first of all, and you have to outline the expectations that you know once he gets intubated, we might have to put a trach immediately. They're going to be in the hospital for for three or four months. So yeah, Dustin, I mean, great points, great points about this. Uh, my thing though, I want to say about the COVID conversation is. The fact that the family can't come to the bedside has been a real big challenge as an intensivist, oh, yes. okay? Yes. A lot of times it's like, oh my goodness, you know, they're, they're, they're heading downhill, they're not doing well, especially earlier on in the pandemic, like you said, and they couldn't come to the bedside. It was very traumatic. Yeah. It was very traumatic for those families. And I just want to say on behalf of all IC doctors everywhere, we're so sorry that you had to go through that, you know, but we were trying to protect you as a community, okay? Yeah. And we still are. You know, we still are, still are. And we have some hospitals have e-link capacity, sorry, where you can camera in and see your loved one, but we are still trying to make sure that you stay safe. And as you said, our intubation survival rates have changed. And with ECMO, you know, we've seen outcomes change also. And these patients are staying on these therapies for months at a time. However, as I said before, Patients who have been intubated or are in the ICU for months, there's something we call critical care weakness. Okay? Yes. It's called criti- it's critical illness myopathy or polyneuropathy is the, the formal term, okay? But it's basically you've been in the bed so long, you've been on events so long, you've been on these supportive therapies so long that you're so weak, okay? You're in an article on that. The re- yes, I did. The rehabilitation... <laughs> The rehabilitation for these patients is is really, really difficult, okay? Like, it's going to be a long road, and you won't ever really get back to who you were. They're 100%. Mm -hmm. Like, this is even before COVID. They did articles on ARDS and critical illness myopathy, polyneuropathy, and they said 75% was the height that you can expect to get back to after mm-hmm. having like a full-on ARDS being intubated and being on prolonged ventilation. And it's just because breathing takes calories. Breathing takes mm-hmm. work. It takes muscles, okay? So when you're in there breathing with a ventilator, all of that is a stressor on your body, okay? And you're not walking, so your legs don't get used, okay? All your lumbar muscles are not getting used because you're laying in a bed, okay? You're more prone to get bed sores, okay? That's because of nutrition. That's because of pressure. That's because of a number of different things. So we have to look at the quality of life. That's why when we're having these conversations where people were like, yes, we can keep you on this vent for so long, but do you know what's going to happen? Exactly, exactly. Okay, there's a chance you can get vocal cord dysfunction. There's a chance you can get tracheal stenosis. These are fancy words for saying, up here ain't gonna work the same. You're gonna have some breathing <laughs> issues. You're gonna have some talking issues, some phonation issues, some swallowing issues, okay? Got organ failure. Yeah, there we go. There is organ. Feeding yep. tubes, feeding tubes have never been shown to produce any kind of survival benefit. I just want to put that out there. All these people who say, oh, give me my feeding tube. Stop no. it. Stop no. it. No. 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 
assisted feedings have actually helped dementia patients better than feeding tubes. Exactly. Say, Thank you. Just Thank want to say you. that. Thank okay. You. Little, That's little, a whole different conversation. Whole different topic. <laughs> but you know, this is a great conversation. Agreed. I just want to wrap up with the hot points and say. Everybody should be, every provider should be having this conversation. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Get your sea legs. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> okay. Get comfortable having this conversation. Uh, my primary care, get comfortable getting that post form. We love you for it. One, one, one. Okay. And, and really have clear expectations. Speak to them with kindness, with respect you know, level that playing field, get an understanding of what they understand and mm-hmm. try to get everybody on the same page. And the big point is trying to do what the patient would want for themselves. And the best way to do that is patience. My regular people who are listening to this podcast, start having the conversation with your loved ones. This is what I would want if X, Y, Z should happen. Anything else you guys mm-hmm. want to say and wrap up? So I have one question. It was yes. kind of... Um, and it's to Dustin, actually, why did you choose palliative? And part of the reason is, part of the reason I asked is because I thought about it, number one. And then two, today I saw someone on Twitter who said, you know, basically she said she, um, you know, has said that she wants to do palliative care and people look at her and laugh. And then she's saying like, what's the, what's the deal with that? Like people who say they want to be surgeons or, you know, ICU docs, people applaud them. Oh yeah, go ahead. But someone says Jerry or palliative, we'd be like, you're wasting your life. What are you doing? Like, no, which I is not you. fair. It's not it's fair. Not. I, I not. love my palliative people. So I just want to get on you. So what was your motivation? Like, why were you drawn to Pally? We, we, we love our intensivists. <laughs> um, no, so I mean, I think uh, really, and, and I think when I, I speak about it, I speak to, to many people who go into palliative, it is really, truly a calling. It's truly a calling where you know that if there are experiences that you've had, for example, during residency uh, at Newark Beth Israel, I've noticed that people were just not getting the loved ones involved in people's care. I noticed that people were getting, you know, not the care that they are appropriately should be getting, or we're not talking to the right person. Like it's, I see that a lot of people are being marginalized and this is a, this is a specialty where you are dabbling in so many things, not only just medicine, but psychiatric and surgical as well too, OBGYN Mm -hmm. and pediatrics, where you can delve into the, the most, vulnerable patients and to make sure that their narrative is heard and to be respected by whoever's treating them. Um, you know, that's really, you know, and, and making sure that we provide that good quality of life while they're getting through so much treatments or going through all the agony that they're going through that we don't, we can't even fathom what they're going through mm-hmm. and to be able to be a part of that, a part of their life. It is really an honor um, to be, to be doing this for them. Um, and you know, to me, the work is the most important. I don't care how much I get paid. I don't care what people say to me, as long as I can make that person, you know, be able to get to that, to that wedding that they've always wanted to get to, or to get through Mm -hmm. the treatments that they need to, or having the people or loved ones that are, that need to be involved, um, should be there. Um, that's really why I went into palliative care. I love it. I love my palliative because it's going to make me up, period. I love palliative care. It wasn't, as you said, it's a calling. It wasn't my calling, but in my mind, 
as an intensivist and Kristen, you can agree or disagree. I think you'll agree. We can get caught up in this procedure, that procedure. We've got to get this done, that done, this done, that done. And the pally guys, you guys, for me, you, you, you ground, you ground me as the intensivist. You are truly on the team of the patient. You will walk up to me, the ICU person and say, Hey, hold up, wait a minute. Slow your roll. This is what this patient wants. So is what your, you know, your plan of care, we need to look at, is it in alignment with what this patient wants? And that's why I, listen, I will always be team Pally. It's not for me, but I'm team Pally all the way because you guys, you're truly on the patient side. Listen, I, I just want to say I'm, I'm so proud of, of Dustin. I, I'm, uh, oh, I'm saying I'm I'm go up from, you know, medical student to now. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God, medical student. Yeah, yeah that's I mean, right. Yeah. Oh my I God, Emily. I, she's like, I, she was my, my, my resident when I was a student. <laughs> it was, it was crazy. And so like, I, I hear him talking now and I'm, I'm so glad you found your passion. A lot of people don't find their passions in life, but yeah. that's wonderful. Oh, and as an intensivist, palliative care, as we all know, for me, I think it's just a beautiful part of what we do. And uh, maybe in a later part of my life, I might dip into the pool. But, you know, hey, I, I like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> my thing is, I, I, I love having those conversations because I feel like that's my time to connect. I started out as a primary care resident. That was my that was my, what I got into. Oh, you and me. Care. You and me. Yes. Yeah. Remember? We, were yeah. we were in the same role. And I, then I said, oh, I, I kind of like ICU. And I dipped into Pong Pret, you know? And everybody was like, what are you doing? And I was like, this is what, you know, I'm following my passion. You know, it's never been about a paycheck. It's been about mm-hmm. well, how I can help patients. And, yeah. um, you know, I feel like ICU has a unique opportunity. Yes, we get grounded into procedures and so forth. But I always kind of stop and say, what does this patient want? Mm-hmm. Right. Does the family understand what's going on? And I make mm-hmm. the time. Like I stayed after work here for about an hour and a half on this last shift that I just did. Um, hence why I'm looking busted and combusted. But anyhow, I'd call the families to make sure they knew what was going on with their loved one. They knew what to expect, that we were doing what they wanted, you know? And right. I and that's our opportunity to connect with them and to make sure that we're all on the same page. But that is dedication. I, that, there you go. <laughs> I want to say thank you to you guys for being on the podcast. We're definitely going to do a part two for this. So you guys yes. have the estate locked in to MD Fab. Woo-hoo! Thanks for Woo-hoo! joining! <laughs> 